Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter Six, Temper. No ice on their water bucket this morning, Martin said. Got an early egg, too. He set the egg beside yesterday's two eggs on the counter. They've really slowed down with the shorter days and all. Susan and Margaret were sitting at the dining-room table with a pile of dry bean pods heaped between them. They seemed to have been in the middle of a conversation, which Martin had interrupted. While they sat at opposite ends of the table, their faces betrayed no tensions. If anything, Margaret looked disinterested. Susan looked focused on her bean pods. Margaret was shelling the beans with her usual alacrity. With a paring knife in one hand and a pod in the other, she would cut a slit near the stem end of the pod, pinch the stem with thumb and knife, and pull. The pod would unzip with a long fiber. With her other thumbnail, she would scoop out the dry beans in one smooth motion. Susan was watching, but trying not to look obvious about it. She was not finding the pod zip fibers. Her attempts merely broke the pods, which she then had to pry apart and dig within to extract the dry beans. Margaret's pile of dry beans was four times the size of Susan's. Rather than looking discouraged, Susan was focused intently on Margaret's hands, trying to learn her secret. Martin felt it best to leave the two women working together peacefully. He quietly walked past them to the smaller bedroom. He planned to go back out into the woods and scout for deer signs. He was pleased at trading some salsa for a salami the day before, but he doubted such trading would be a reliable resource. Whatever food supplies were cached in the various homes of Cheshire was a finite resource and dwindling as people ate it. If deer were in the backwoods, it would be a new input to the supply, not just a transfer. He doubted he would see anything, but reasoned that if he did see a deer while scouting, it would be a tragic waste of an opportunity to not have a gun ready. That meant installing the slug barrel on his shotgun. For that, he first had to find it. While he rummaged through the safe in the adjacent cabinet, the women at the table resumed the conversation he had interrupted. Their voices carried down the hallway. Sounds really nice to me, Margaret said. Oh, it was in some ways, Susan's voice lacked enthusiasm. I always dreamed of a life like that, Margaret said. Restaurants, live theater, museums, it must have been a marvelous thing living right in the city. Seems like you have it great right here, Susan said. I guess, Margaret lacked enthusiasm. It was a nice safe place to raise the kids, and it's quiet. Sometimes I think it's too quiet. Susan chuckled. <laughs> the city is never quiet. Even at 3 a.m., there were traffic noises, honking, rowdy college boys... I'm starting to appreciate quiet. You have a very nice home here. Oh, thanks. I try to keep it nice. I must confess, I wasn't too thrilled when Martin showed me this place. We talked about moving, but I was picturing something closer to the city, not farther from it. We haven't seen a live play or a concert since we moved here. During the awkward silence, Martin noticed that he was no longer looking for a slug barrel. He was simply listening. Were Margaret and Susan bonding, or whatever it is that women do? He had no idea what bonding sounded like. But it was fascinating in its own right that the two of them were having a regular conversation. When I was a little girl, Susan said, I used to dream about having a little cottage in a dark mossy woods. 
she chuckled. <laughs> Maybe I'd seen too many Disney movies. When I was a girl, I used to dream about living in a big city with lights and bustle and energy, so this place wasn't really on my dream radar. Still, Martin was right. It was a great place to raise the kids. We didn't have to worry about them playing outside. Such different dreams, huh? Susan said. Yeah, so when Martin wanted to raise chickens, I was against the idea. Next thing you'll be wanting cows, I said. He eventually persuaded me to do the chickens, but I told him that the butchering and the cleaning were all his job. I'm not doing that anymore. And I drew a firm line. No cows. Ever. Susan chuckled. He, he wanted a cow? I don't think he did, but I wasn't going to leave the door open. The rule is, no cows. Okay, why no cows? Oh, I've had my fill of them, let me tell you. I grew up on a farm. It wasn't one of the fancy modern farms, either. We milked by hand, hauled milk cans by hand. We had to herd them, too. And the cows can be so blasted stubborn sometimes. They just go wherever they want to go. A sixty-pound girl doesn't have a lot of clout with a thousand-pound cow. While I was out in the meadow keeping those stupid cows from running off into the woods, I used to dream about a nice clean life with dresses that stayed white and didn't smell like manure. Bright lights, good food, clean smells. So, no, no cows. I'm not doing cows anymore. Wow, I had no idea. Martin found the slug barrel and got it mounted. He lingered by the door, still curious what bonding sounded like, or just to hear more of Margaret's thoughts. He recalled her refusal to have a cow, which he was never seriously entertaining anyhow. He knew she disliked her childhood on the farm, but had never heard about her dream of city life. I had the city life, Susan began, and I thought I liked it. But it turned out to be, well, not so much when it turns out that someone in... And what you've got here is... you've got something really special. Martin was not certain why, but he felt the need to interrupt. Was he worried they were getting too personal? Was he afraid she was going to talk about him? Was he afraid Susan was going to talk about her ex-boyfriend? He still had a strong distaste for that Mark character and how he treated Susan. He certainly did not want to hear him being discussed. Or was it something else? Well, I'm all set, he said, striding quickly down the hallway. Margaret had the leftovers of a puzzled gaze at Susan when he interrupted. Where are you going with that? she asked. Uh, gonna scout out the woods some more. Maybe find something bigger than a squirrel. The women didn't talk while he pulled on his heavy coat, boots, and cap. Tramping down to follow the dry stream bed, he felt foolish for his interruption. What good did that one break do? They would simply resume talking after he left. He couldn't pinpoint what bothered him, so he decided to put the thoughts away and concentrate on the task at hand. Martin scanned the leaf litter for any kind of sign that something had been there. He had no Indian tracker skills, but reasoned that even he could tell if the forest floor had been disturbed by something. He was not moving especially quietly. Even he knew the deer would not be out in the mid-afternoon. It didn't matter if his noise spooked a squirrel. He certainly wasn't going to bag a squirrel with shotgun slugs. There'd be nothing left. Climbing up the banks of the little stream valley, he thought the noise he was making would be a good warning if there were any foraging college kids nearby. He certainly didn't want any more heated encounters with Cupcake. If she got that angry over a twenty-two, what would she do with the sight of a shotgun? 
In a sandy patch of a clearing, he spotted a deer track. It was a smallish print, but proof, nonetheless, that he did have deer traveling through his backwoods. Judging from the crisp impression and the direction of travel, he reasoned that it had recently come across Old Stockman Road from Baldwin's Woods, following his dry stream bed and then up through the little saddle to cross the fire trail. He was about to follow the print to look for more when he heard his little generator fire up. He had run the generator only an hour earlier. The fridge and freezer were good for three more hours. Why are they running the generator? Part of him wanted to ignore the new sound and look for more deer trail, but the sound gnawed at him. Was something wrong? Had something happened that suddenly required power? The deer trail would have to wait. He needed to get home to see what the problem was. Martin started up the back walk, but could see Dustin and Judy in front of his car, and the generator at their feet. "'What's going on here?' Martin asked. "'Oh, hi, Dad. The beast's battery was really low, and I figured the generator would use less gas than running the engine.' "'What? Uh, well, why?' This didn't seem like an emergency to Martin. Uh, "'We were listening to the radio a lot, uh, you know, and charging up Judy's iPod, so the battery—' "'You what?' Martin shouted. He strode over to the generator and shut it down. "'What is the matter with you?' Do you think we have unlimited gas? We need to save that for real emergencies, important uses. But Judy's been... Her entertainment addiction is not a real emergency. Martin ripped the jumper cables off the battery and slammed the hood shut. We need that gas to get us through the winter, and, if we're really careful, maybe have some for the chainsaws in the spring. What freaking good does it do any of us that she's been happily listening to her music all winter, but we've got nothing for the chainsaws? Oh, for crying out loud, Dustin, where's your brain? Judy ran off to the back door. Dad, Dustin scolded. He jogged after Judy. Martin grumbled to himself as he put the generator away. What did you say? Margaret demanded as Martin came through the back door. Her tone had that what-have-you-done reprimand to it. Martin was in no mood for a scolding. I told him we're not wasting gas on something as stupid as keeping that girl's iPod charged. Well, if you said it like that, what difference does it make how I said it? We're not on vacation here. We've got serious problems. There may not be any more gas for a long time. We need it for the freezer, as long as the food holds out, and who knows what else we'll need it for. Or for how long? Two months? Three? A year? That girl's happy entertainment cocoon is a luxury none of us can afford. Martin, Margaret scolded. Not so loud. She'll hear you. So what? She's got to hear the truth sometime. There won't be any TV to sit in front of for a long time. There won't be any internet games or social media for her to waste hours with. The sooner she wakes up to the reality the rest of us are living in, the better for everyone. You just stay here and calm yourself. I'm going to go see if I can repair some of your damage. Margaret marched down the stairs. All the while, Susan sat at the table, with the wide eyes of an uncomfortable spectator. When Martin saw her eyes, it took all the wind out of his sails. He felt like his sail looked when he had been sailing his dad's little sloop in fickle winds. Sometimes things were good. The sail was full and stretched tight with a firm breeze. The boat heeled over tightly, surging eagerly ahead. But sometimes the wind just died. The sail sagged limp. The boat flattened out and coasted to a stop. That was how Martin felt. I'm sorry, he said to Susan. You shouldn't have had to hear all that. He sat with his head in his hands. That's okay, she said very softly. You don't have to apologize. 
Yes, I do. That wasn't the way to handle that. As you can see, I still have a knack for being a jerk. We've been through all that, she said gently. Remember, we had a deal. You're not a jerk. Yeah, and you're not a burden. I know. We had a deal. He knew he couldn't look up, because he'd see her eyes. He could not look at her eyes at the moment. Superman does not enter a room that he knows is full of kryptonite. This has been a hard time for everyone, she said. You've been trying to take care of us, and that's very stressful. That might be why I'm a jerk, but it doesn't make it okay that I'm a jerk. Do I have to repeat myself? Why don't you write it down on your invisible notepad? Not a jerk. There was a playful lilt in her soft tone. He risked a peek between his fingers. She was smiling tenderly. He clamped his eyes shut again. He knew he shouldn't have looked. Kryptonite. Dustin has her calm down, Margaret said as she climbed the stairs. At least she's not crying anymore. She sat at the chair beside Martin. And it looks like you've calmed down, too. That's good. I wasn't out to make her cry, Martin said. It's just that everything is more serious now. I know, Martin, I know. Margaret patted his hand. You just have to go a little easier around her. She's lived a pretty sheltered life, don't forget. Her parents made sure she had everything she needed. Even Dustin has kept her pretty sheltered. He means well, but I don't think it's necessarily been all that good for Judy. Now she's trying to grapple with a world that isn't secure, where her needs aren't automatically taken care of by someone else. She's been hiding from that in her music. I know all that, Martin said. But it doesn't change things. We can't spend precious resources just to keep her bubble inflated. She's going to have to cope with reality just like the rest of us. Dustin slowly climbed the stairs, his face apprehensive. Margaret gave him a little nod. Ah, uh, Dad, look, uh, I'm sorry about the generator and all. Martin held his hands up. I want to say I'm sorry too, but I'm not there yet. These are serious times. We can't afford to indulge in luxuries anymore. I know. Dustin hung his head. It's just that Judy is used to... Why is everyone so willing to make excuses for that girl? Martin began to rant. Margaret patted his hand again. Martin leaned back in his chair. Ah, sorry, I cut you off. Go on. I was going to say that she's used to being connected to the world. It's not like she really cares what's going on in London or South Africa or whatever. But news from out there is like, well, I don't know... Reassurance that the world is still turning. Life is going on. Facebook with friends, texting, games. It's all like threads leading from her out to the whole world. She was a part of the world that way. Now, without any of that, it's like she's lost, floating in space or something. I think it scares her. I tried to get some news on my car radio to help her, but it didn't seem to help. It was too limited and too local. She just wants to know what's going on out there in the world, you know, beyond New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And what if the news from the outside isn't good, Martin asked. Is she only expecting happy news because it isn't happy? Remember what I was telling you that Walter was... Martin felt an inner drenching of ice water. An idea was forming. What if the news isn't good, he repeated. What would she do with that? Dustin looked pensive for a moment. You know... I think she'd be okay with news being bad. It was bad during the wildfires, or that jetliner crash, or the bombings. 
As long as she knew what was going on out there, seems like she'd be fine, even if it was bad. Then I have an idea, Martin stood up. What? Margaret asked. To get her some news, Martin answered. Walter spoke of working the skips, listening to distant broadcasts, whether it was on ham or a.m. or what. That's where he gets his news from out there. I say we take Judy to Walter's and let her listen in on out there. We can't do this every day, but maybe if she knows there's a way to know, she'll be okay with not knowing for a while. You do that for Judy? Margaret's voice betrayed a mix of surprise and disbelief. Yes, darn it all, Martin grumbled. I might be a jerk, Susan frowned at him disapprovingly, but I'm also a hopeless softy. Not a good combination. Go tell her we're going to get her some news, Martin told Dustin. Both of you, dress warm. We'll be coming back very late tonight, and it's going to be cold. Late at night? Margaret asked. If you go now, you could listen for an hour or so and be back before dark. No, I guess the skips don't happen until after sundown. It's an atmospheric radio wave thing. What makes you think this Walter will be listening to his radio tonight? He would have to be conserving his generator fuel, too, wouldn't he? Margaret asked. Hmm, Martin mused. Good point. He did just give his report yesterday, so he might not be planning to go on the air tonight. Still, it seemed like he went on the air every day, at least a few times. Guess I'm gambling. Judy has her coat on, Dustin announced. She wants to go now. Well, it's not quite time to go yet, Martin called down the stairs. If you guys are coming too, you'd better dress warm, Martin said to Margaret and Susan. I don't think I should go, Margaret said. Ruby said she wasn't feeling well, something about a tightness in her throat. I guess I'd better stay in case she needs something. Margaret looked at Susan with a raised eyebrow, as if to ask, Well? I'll stay and take care of Ruby, too, Susan said. They're staying together? Martin wasn't sure if that was a good development or not. He decided that it was better than he and Susan were not off on some adventure together, again. Perhaps their conversation over the shell beans meant the two women were less uncomfortable with each other. That was what his optimistic side promoted. Martin eagerly bought it. What you two can do is get out the bikes, Martin hollered down the stairs. Yours and Mom's are probably good to go, but my old road bike is in the back of the shed. Tires are probably flat, Martin muttered to Margaret. I haven't ridden that thing in ten years. Dustin pumped up the road bike's tires with a little hand pump. It was slow work. Judy wiped off the dust and the cobwebs, trying to avoid eye contact with Martin. Nonetheless, he could see that her eyes were red and puffy. He shook his head. It was so quick and easy to be a jerk, but it took so long for others to recover from it. Martin carefully poured some gasoline into one of the half-gallon milk jugs he had been saving. What's that for? Dustin asked. A fair trade for Walter. If I'm going to ask him to stay on the air longer than he planned, I'd better be willing to pay for it. But you said we had to conserve. Yes, yes I did. And we still do. But if a quart of gas will help Judy over her problem, it'll be worth it. I packed you each a little cold supper to take along. Margaret held up Martin's gray backpack. We don't want to impose on Walter and Sally, expecting them to provide you with a meal. That's not nice these days. Martin, Dustin, and Judy biked up Old Stockman Road. Even though it was a long way around, it saved them trying to ride up Stockman Hill. Town Hill was no cakewalk, however. They had to walk their bikes up. 
There was a little activity around Town Hall, but, by and large, very few people were out. At the curve to Haverhill Road, Martin could see Jen working Jasmine in her paddock. She had Jasmine harnessed up to a delicate-looking four-wheel buggy of some kind. The horse was getting more accustomed to her new duties as a driving horse. She made tight turns around the barrels, without a step out of place. The coast down Wilson Hill would have been a more welcome relief from the work of going uphill if it were not for the wind chill. It stung the cheeks and forehead to the point of causing a headache. Martin was feeling his lack of training on the bike during the long ride back up Walnut Hill. Back in the day, hundred-mile days were no big deal. Ten years off the bike had taken its toll. This five-mile ride was tougher than he imagined. Nonetheless, he was not about to whine or complain, but kept up with the two youngsters, despite his thighs aching. Windchill was no longer a problem. Sweat was. This place on the left, Martin hollered. He tried not to sound out of breath, which he was. With the rock wall! Dustin waved to acknowledge and turned into the driveway. Martin tried some discreet rapid breathing before knocking on the door to raise his oxygen levels, hopefully above the panting-for-breath level. He didn't want to appear as wiped out as he felt. No one answered the door. Martin began to dread that they had come all that way only to find out that Walter and Sally weren't home. The windows were dark, but that was true of nearly every house, even if people were home. With the rumor of trouble from passing beggars, having lit windows was a beacon for trouble. Happily, Sally was home. The door opened a tiny crack, then wider. Martin? Martin Simmons? Sally asked. Martin hoped that she was having trouble recognizing him right away because the daylight was fading, not because he was so wiped out from his ride that he looked like someone else, someone sweaty and ragged. Yes, uh, hi. Um... I wondered if I might ask Walter for a favor. Uh, is he home? Well, certainly. Sally flung the door wide. Come in, come in. And who's this with you? Uh, this is my son, Dustin, and his wife, Judy. Is that lovely Susan with you, too? Sally peeked out into the darkening yard. Lovely Susan? asked Dustin. Never mind. Uh, no, just us. That's a pity. Oh, well, so you wanted Walter. Come and sit at the table. I'll fetch the kettle from the fire and make you all a nice hot cup of tea. You must be cold. Walter! Sally shouted as if she was calling hogs. What? came an annoyed response from the back room. You've got company. Come down here. Sally's hostess smile quickly returned as she faced Martin. He'll be right along. He's, I'll go get that kettle. Walter's approach could be tracked by the increased volume of his grumbling. Who in blazes is calling these days? People don't go just have company anymore. They, they're, oh, uh, Martin, uh, it's you. Uh, well, what brings you uh, out here so late in the day? Uh, hi, Walter. Actually, I came to ask you a favor. Uh, I'm not sure what I can do for you, but uh, go ahead and ask anyway. Walter sat down, lowering himself into his dining room chair. Were you planning to go on the air this evening? Uh, sure, six o'clock, my, uh, my usual check-in. Martin felt awkward asking for favors. Were you going to work the skips tonight? I hadn't planned to. I just did that Sunday. Uh, trying to conserve my fuel, you know. Uh, why? Well, we were hoping to hear some news of what's going on out there in the world. 
Judy here, my daughter-in-law, was a real fan of keeping up with the news before all of this came down. She'd really like to hear, you know, firsthand what's happening farther away than Massachusetts. Oh, news fan, eh? Walter chuckled. Yeah, a girl. Judy smiled nervously. But I know how precious fuel is, so I brought you this. Martin pulled the former milk jug out of his backpack. How much airtime would a quart of gas get us? Ah, Martin, you didn't have to do that. For a news fan, and such a lovely young lady, I'd have done it for free. Well, thanks, Walter. But seriously, I want you to have this quart of gas. Would that get us, like, a half hour of airtime? Walter frowned as he stared into space, calculating in his head. Yeah, probably more like an hour, if the rig is all I have running. Oh, great, Martin was relieved. Oh, we'll take no more than an hour. Sounds like a deal. Walter leaned forward a couple of times to build a momentum for getting up from his chair. I'll just take this court and put it in the jenny. Gonna go on the air soon for my check-in. Oh, hey, that reminds me. Uh, you got a message yesterday. I did? Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, where did I put that? Walter rummaged through the desk with one hand, still holding the gas in the other. Yeah, here we go. Uh, I'll spare you the call sign code stuff. Uh, it's from Lindsay. Says, married Jake, all okay on farm. Buckets. Married Jake? Martin leaned back in the chair. It was momentous news coming out of the blue. Even though they had hinted that they were dating and that marriage was a possible outcome, he had to sit a while and digest it. Walter toddled out to start his generator. It was nearly six o'clock. Uh, you okay, Dad? Dustin asked. Yeah, it's just big news, uh, all of a sudden. But I'm really relieved to have heard from her. Wonder how she found out about the ham radio thing. Yeah, it doesn't matter. She did, and I'm glad. Huh, married, huh? My little girl, a married woman. Martin stared into space, reflecting on the news. He had always imagined he would walk her down the aisle and put her hand in the groom's hand, stare him in the eye, and say, You'd better take good care of her. It was his fatherly dream. From the news Walter just handed him, he wouldn't have that opportunity. Oh, Jake's a cool guy, Dad. He'll be good for her. They were talking about married stuff anyhow, so it's no surprise. Besides, he was always into hunting and stuff. That'll be really important nowadays. And she's on his folks' farm. Couldn't pick a better place to hole up through all this. Dustin was painting as rosy a picture as he could. Excuse me, excuse me. Walter Speed shuffled past them to get to his radio set. Don't want to be late. I haven't had to buy anything yet. He flipped on some switches and pulled the mic up close. CQ, CQ, K1NTZ at the top of the hour. CQ, CQ, K1NTZ. N1WGF crackled the speaker with a woman's voice. Back at you, Walter. K-A-1-Y-R-K, at the top of the hour, crackled another voice. Ha! At last! I wasn't the last one this time, exclaimed the woman. I claim double chocolate eclair. Woohoo! Double chocolate, Ray! Yes, dear, crackled the other voice wearily. Calm down, you two, scolded Walter. We've got business to cover, and we only got three minutes to do it. Walter, Ray, and Joyce swapped messages. Joyce conveyed messages that came to her from her area leader. Ray had a message to pass back. They then turned to local news. Sounds like the mass orders are for more than just hospitals now, said Joyce. From what I got from my contact out in the Berkshires, it sounds like they're trying to convince people to leave their homes in the countryside and move into the cities. 
people out this way are being told that Springfield will be the safest place and how the countryside is a dangerous place these days. What's the danger? asked Ray. He didn't say. Actually, he didn't know. Authorities just talked about dangers. Well, time's up, folks. We'd better sign off. Seventy-three's all. Yeah, talk to you tomorrow at the regular time. K1NTZ clear. Seventy-threes, crackled Ray and Joyce. Walter shut off his radio equipment, then shuffled outside to shut down his generator. It'll be a while before he does anything on his skips, said Sally. Can I get you all some supper? I've been saving this can of tuna for a special occasion. We don't get many visitors these days. No, but thank you, said Martin. We brought some supper with us. How about uh, if we just eat ours with you and Walter? And that would be lovely. Let me get some more hot water for another cup of tea. I see your cup is empty. Martin, Dustin, and Judy ate the flatbread, slice of cheese, and apple wedges that Margaret had packed for them. Walter and Sally each had a slice of bread with some chicken broth soup and a few green beans floating in it. The Simmons's household was not the only one conserving against an uncertain future. No one seemed to notice the meager fare. They were too busy telling their stories. Dustin told of his harrowing tale with the Georgia-slash-New Jersey man and driving blind. Martin told of Cupcake and Andy, though he avoided the hotness details for Judy's sake. Judy was mostly silent, but listened intently as Walter told some of the things that he had heard on his radio. Seems like it might be getting late enough, Walter glanced up at the clock. He pushed his chair back. You all gather round the set here, pull up some chairs. I'll go fire up the Jenny again. Judy sat nearest Walter's chair. She had an eager look. Eh, let's see. Walter sat down and turned some knobs. I got something here the other night, eh, but... Nothing came in but static. Okay, then uh, maybe this one. Something buzzed through the static. He turned another knob. The sound improved, but resembled someone speaking Spanish through a kazoo. Walter turned the big knob very slowly. Yeah, the skips aren't so good here in the cooler weather, Walter said apologetically. So we won't be getting Rio or Paris or anything. He resumed turning the big knob. After turning it all the way to a stop, he frowned at his equipment. Hmm, I'm going to try something unusual. Maybe I can get some skips on AM. Usually too much local clutter, but nowadays. Walter put on a pair of headphones, flipped a couple of switches, and stared at a small meter as he slowly turned another knob. He would occasionally pause, but shake his head and resume turning the knob. At one point, Walter tensed up. Hey, 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 I got something. Here, hold on. He fiddled with another piece of equipment that had not been turned on before. Yeah, okay, uh, how's this? Walter flipped a switch so everyone could hear. Most of their equipment was rescued from the Arts Center fire last week. In the best show business tradition, the directors have set up the available musicians in the old Orpheum Theater on North Broadway. KYWA wanted to bring you this live performance of the Wichita Symphony Orchestra. While this might be the last performance for the foreseeable future, the musicians have called this their one small act of defiance against this present crisis, proof that our city is not decaying into barbarism like so many others. Since the Orpheum is located near our broadcast studio, we were able to arrange this live feed. 
We must also thank all of those who donated their fuel to run our generators. Thank you for your generosity. You have made this night possible for everyone in our radio audience tonight. As I sit here in the balcony, waiting for the orchestra to enter, I am struck by the timelessness of this scene. The Orpheum is a 1920s era theater, and we are broadcasting live, just like a 1930s radio show. The Orpheum seats a little over a thousand, and it is packed here tonight. The improvised oil lamp stands along the walls provide a warm, if marginal, lighting. A row of camping lanterns line the edges of the stage. Improvised footlights. Oh, the musicians are coming onto the stage. The sound of applause and enthusiastic cheering erupted. It looks like three-quarters or so of the performers were able to make it for tonight's performance. The sound of tuning up instruments mingled with the continued soft applause, creating a chaotic din. And here comes the conductor, Hagen Daniels. And now we present the Wichita Symphony Orchestra playing Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 4 in E minor. A long moment of silence was broken only by the occasional cough from the audience. The music burst forth from Walter's speakers with an unexpected richness. Everyone seated around the radio stared intently. No one moved throughout the entire first movement. In the dim lamplight, Martin could see a wet track of a tear on Judy's cheek. Partway into the second movement, an intermittent skip grew into more obvious gaps of silence. They were easy to ignore at first, but became longer and more intrusive. Ah, shoot, Walter stood up and adjusted another knob. I think we're losing it. Despite his efforts, the music finally stuttered out. Only soft static remained. Ah, sorry, everyone. I'll see if I can get something else. Walter slipped on his headphones. He began flipping switches and twisting knobs like Oz behind his curtain. Are you okay? Dustin asked Judy. She nodded. That was so beautiful. Really? You never liked classical music. I didn't, but that sounded, I don't know, it sounded kind of sad, somehow, and yet, at the same time, hopeful. I liked that. Can, can you get it back? I don't think so, miss. Sorry, said Walter. Let me see what else is floating around out there. He turned the knob while looking in the distance at nothing, like safecrackers do in the movies. Can I get you some more tea? Sally asked. Maybe a slice of bread. Martin was still quite hungry, but he declined the bread. Who knew how much food Walter and Sally had, or didn't have? Nonetheless, the rules of hospitality dictated that she offer. I'll uh, take another cup of tea, if that's okay. Sally smiled broadly. The rules of hospitality were satisfied. Sure, I'm sure the kettle is hot by now. She hurried out to the living room. I think I've picked up something else. Uh, hold on. Walter adjusted a small knob until a little red light flickered on. Uh, no idea what it is or where it is. He pulled off his headphones. Have less than eight hours left to comply with the situation commander's order to vacate the facility. Thus far, those behind the barricades have shown no sign of dismantling their barriers or preparing to withdraw. 
In the Army searchlights, I can see a yellow flag that the workers hoisted below the American flag at the center of the Acre Fresh warehouse compound. We hope to stay on the air and give you a live coverage of this tense situation. I wonder what that's all about, mused Dustin. And where? added Walter. This whole confrontation has escalated far out of proportion, if you ask me. It would not have come to this ultimatum by the Army Situation Commander if the Governor had simply ordered the State Police to force the workers to comply with the Executive Order. The Governor's comments that the State Police are for public safety and not federal collections is clearly contradicted by the danger everyone is facing down there. This could be a public safety nightmare. If the State Police had been sent in earlier, all of those other people wouldn't have been able to join the workers inside the Acre Fresh compound escalating the situation. It was only after the units of the 99th Regional Security Command set up roadblocks on Gilchrist Road by the overpass and south where the tracks cross that the area was secured. Now no one is being allowed near the site. We have been in the Econo Lodge since Saturday morning, not far from the scene, covering the first encounter, so we were already in a good position to cover the unfolding events. Everyone else has evacuated voluntarily but we stayed behind to bring you this exclusive WHLO coverage of the showdown at Acre Fresh. As we saw Sunday before the Army moved in, many people came and added their cars to the long barricade around the warehouse. They joined the workers. Estimates are there are now over a hundred people inside. The new people were clearly armed, some of them with assault rifles. Rumors that other armed citizens have been streaming into the area from surrounding towns has only heightened the tensions. This whole ugly confrontation is a stain on the reputation of Ohio and, if any lives are lost, will clearly be laid at the feet of the governor. From our vantage point here on the roof of the Econo Lodge, we can see the dozens of white FEMA semi-trucks parked in a lot across Gilchrist Road since Saturday morning. Their drivers are stymied by the plant workers' refusal to comply with the Fed's efforts to bring much-needed supplies to those cities racked by food riots. Since Monday's tear gas assault failed to dislodge the workers, negotiations have stalled. The workers still refuse to leave or allow the trucks to enter or be loaded with food. Fears are that this standoff situation has slim prospects for a peaceful resolution. Holy crap! What was that? Uh, listeners, there was an explosion down by the scene. I can, I can see the fire across the street, among the parked FEMA trucks. A shot! Oh, somebody fired a shot! Who is that? Oh, holy crap! Now the army is firing into the barricade. The workers are firing back. Oh no, oh no, this is terrible. This is all going horribly wrong. Someone is shouting something in a bullhorn. We can't make out what, or even who. Uh, the firing continues. Both sides are... Whoa! A huge fireball explosion on the barricade. Explosion on the barricade. The army must have fired a cannon or an RPG or something at the barricade. A truck and a car in the middle of the driveway blew up and are now engulfed in flames. The fire is so bright, it lights up the parking lot area and the yard. I can see men running back by the buildings. Oh, mama, another RPG. This one flipped the car over. The army made a breach in the barricade. Lots of small arms fire now. Men up on the roof of the warehouse are firing at the soldiers. They have some fortified positions up there. I can see two, uh, no, three armored personnel carriers advancing on the breach to the barricade. They're firing their guns mounted on the roofs. It looks like the army is going to force their way in. They must be trying to isolate the office building from the warehouse. 
men inside the barricade are running, but... Oh, oh my God! An explosion under one of the vehicles. Something blew up under the middle APC. It's engulfed in flames. It's backing up, backing up quickly. Its tires are on fire. The other two are backing up, too, pr providing covering fire. Oh, oh, on the right. Men are running out from behind a building. They have torches. Uh, no, no Molotovs. One of them falls. Uh, was he shot? The others keep running forward. They throw. Another man falls. Trails of fire arc over the barricade. The APC nearest us has been hit twice. No, no, three. Four Molotovs hit it. Oh, it's on fire. It's backing away quickly now, too. More men fall behind the barricade. Uh, I can't see the vehicles anymore. They went behind a low building. I'm guessing the fires are out, because I don't see any glow over there. How long can this go on? How many men inside the compound are going to die for this? Surely they can see that they are surrounded, cut off from everything. Why do they continue? The army can afford to sit and wait. Oh, oh, hold on. I hear a helicopter coming. This is a dark and overcast night, so we can't see it. It's showing no lights, of course. Oh, oh, up there, over the restaurant. I think I saw it. Maybe, maybe the fires are reflected in the windows or something. Oh my god, the helicopter is firing on a compound. It's firing something big, a cannon or something. Oh, I don't know. Th there are tracers. They seem to be concentrating on the corners of the roofs where the workers constructed machine gun nests on, on Sunday. Wait, the compound is returning fire. I saw sparks up in the sky there. Uh, more gunfire. They're firing at the helicopter. But where's that coming from? Oh, wait, the chopper's engine sounds different. I think it's been hit. The chopper is pulling back. It, it's headed away. I don't see any flames. Do you? No, no, but it's getting lower, though. It's going... It's going that way. Oh, God, I hope it doesn't crash. Please don't crash. Ha! No, way over there. It turned on its light, see? It set down okay. Oh, thank God. It landed in the yard of one of those companies beyond the tracks. There's smoke, but I don't see any fire. Okay, listeners, I can report that the helicopter did not crash. Repeat, did not crash. I saw it set down safely, though apparently damaged by... What the? Gunfire from somewhere over there. You heard it right, Randy. Where did it come from? Behind us? Where? Oh, I, I don't see it. Oh, okay, everyone. We just heard more gunfire farther up from the compound. I can see flashes on the embankment of the interstate. I don't think those are soldiers. The muzzle flashes are strung out all along the interstate embankment from the river bridge down to the woods. Oh, holy crap. The army is firing back at, at whoever that was. We're between them. We're in crossfire. Get down, everyone. Get down. Down. Everybody, behind the walls. Everyone, get off the roof. Get off now. Get to the stairs. Stay low. Oh, holy crap. No, forget that stuff. Just get to the stairs. Oh, holy crap. We have to... The sound stopped. Only soft static remained. Everyone sat motionless for a minute, as if afraid that by moving they might jinx the radio wave fluke that brought them this signal in the first place and silence it permanently. Walter finally reached up to study his equipment and fine-tune. No, I think it's gone, he said gravely. Do you think they were... Sally began, but trailed off, as if she didn't want to hear her question answered. Could be just as radio equipment got damaged, offered Dustin. They could have gotten away okay. His tone tried to be optimistic. Or maybe the station cut off the signal. After all, the sound just stopped all of a sudden. If they had been, um... But the equipment was still working. We'd hear something. He needed to stop talking before grim details emerged. Oh, Sally grasped happily at the straw Dustin and Martin offered. I sure hope you're right. 
Walter shut off the generator. The silence felt thick and oppressive. Everyone sat in silence for many minutes, each trying to process what they heard. That was awful, Sally said. Has it come to this? Maybe not everywhere, offered Judy softly. Maybe not here. That was a rather sobering glimpse of what's going on out there beyond New Hampshire. I'd like to give a special thanks to Jack, Curtis, Someone, and Zippy Chick for buying me a coffee. See you next week.